This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Spark My Muse. I'm so delighted to have a return guest, Christine Aroni-Sign, and her book we're going to discuss, The Gift of Wonder, Creative Practices for Delighting in God. Thank you so much, Christine, for coming back to my show. Oh, it's a delight to be with you again, Lisa. What I love so much about your book, as I've been reading it, is about how you talk about delighting in God and really the God who delights in us, finding God's joy. And there's such a deep gladness about this book. Uh, I found it so refreshing and such a needed medicine for my soul. So thank you so much for writing it. I think it's just the thing a lot of us need right now. Well, thank you. And and that was, I think, part of my desire in writing it is that, you know, we do seem to be in a very heavy world at the mm. moment. You know, so much, we're aware of so much suffering. Uh, there's so much um, polarization. There seems mm-hmm. to be so much hatred around there. Mm-hmm. And we need to find the joy mm-hmm. um, because we can be drawn into the negative things if we don't find the joy in life and we don't um, learn to recognize and to draw close to the God who really does delight in us and who mm-hmm. receives joy uh, from us as well as giving us joy, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I was going to maybe have you read is the poem that's in the introduction page. And I didn't mention this before to you, but um, if you you could read that little part Uh there, that would be great. It's called, I Choose Joy. I choose to enjoy the glory of the everlasting, ever-present one, to sit and listen to what delights God's heart. I choose to breathe in the wonder of eternal love, and dance to the rhythm of eternal breath, listening to the whispers calling me to slow down and take notice. I choose to absorb the beauty of the divine presence, to delight in the creator creator of all things and relish the delight God takes in me. Hmm. It's a beautiful, beautiful way to begin the book and, and to kind of like step back and this is sort of a a spring cleaning of my soul as I was digging into the book and also it's it's spring here in my where I live and um, and try to um, not let everything that's in the world that's that's sad and that's full of loss and grief and uh, we were just speaking before about the passing of Rachel Held Evans and Jean Vanier and of course, we can we can mourn that, and we can be deep in our feelings. But but also remember that we do have um, the joy of God that sustains us. Well, and can I say that sure. even in the midst of grief, we mm-hmm. can find joy. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I've been doing as a result of these losses mm-hmm. is looking back at the lives of the these two people, mm-hmm. these incredible people and seeing the legacy um, that they've left, you know, um, and imagining the joy that God has taken in them. I mean, both these people have impacted my life, and I know the life of of, of Jean Vanier, millions and millions of people uh, around the globe in so many different ways. Uh, Rachel Held Evans, probably less, but incredibly impacting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the joy that God must take in them 
and the joy that other people have taken in their lives as well. So I think in the midst of our grief, we need to remember that joy too. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, their their memories, of course, live on and their legacy lives on. And as we can, um, you know, it's balancing that that loss with the truth of their li- lives well lived. Um, what I also was <laughs> going to have you talk about here, too, you, you say in this first page, I grew up with a serious workaholic type of God <laughs> chastened me for not keeping busy 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Even when I realized that this was not what God was really like, it was hard to change. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this kind of switch in theology for you. Well, it's true. And I I think, you know, if I'm doing a workshop or uh, speaking somewhere, I usually ask people uh, how many grew up with a workaholic God. Mm -hmm. And I would say 70 to 80 percent of people in the room put their hand up, Uh, some of them hesitantly. But, you know, I think that um, we do have this impression of God as somebody who expects us to work really, really hard 24 hours a day. And unfortunately, I don't think that it's good for us. And I don't think that it's what God wants either. Um, And I think that part of what started um, to change me uh, in in this regard, uh, several years ago, I started to look at the rhythms of Jesus' life. uh, And how did Jesus um, spend his time? And it's like, you know, it doesn't look to me as though he worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he observed the Sabbath, um, at least most of the time. Um, you know, he went out into the desert to pray. He took long times, uh, you know, pauses between very active ministry. So that was the start for me of mm-hmm. recognizing that there was a different kind of rhythm that God wanted for our lives. And then it was really working on this book that kind of solidified it for me because um, I, I talk in this introduction about how uh, one day I was riveted by the passage, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom. Mm. And so I you know, started to think, well, what are the childlike characteristics that make us fit for the kingdom? Mm. And so I posted it on Facebook, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that great theological uh, kind of site, as it were. <laughs> and I, as sometimes it can be a great theological site, actually. But it was amazing. The response I got it was in, overwhelming in some ways. I mean, I think I, I, I got at least 70 or 80 responses, comments wow. of people with different things that they felt um, were, you know, childlikeness that made them fit for the kingdom. Mm. So what I did was I tro- chose the 12 that either I most gravitated towards or that people had mentioned most frequently. And that was what, be- and I did some research. Um, I'm a medical doctor by background. And so, you know, I did some scientific and medical kind of research on the characteristics. And I was absolutely amazed as I started to realize that there was far more to what God called us to um, than this workaholic seriousness. Uh, And that when God called us uh, to become like children, part of that was playfulness. Part of it was imagination. Part of it was, uh, you know, kind of a, a different kind of rhythm to our lives and this workaholic image that we gained of God has uh, made us move towards. And so 
it, it was refreshing and it was liberating as well in so many ways. Um, so, yeah, it's it's funny how how ingrained it is. Even I consider myself a creative person and and goofy and playful. And sometimes I think my kids were in a way born older than me. <laughs> <This way. laughs> They'll tell me, okay, mom, settle down. You can take that off your head now and things, you know. Um, and so they get embarrassed at my goofiness sometimes. But I, there is there is something in my mind that says, you know, an adult is gets the job done, is responsible, and it's hardworking, and you, you don't have time for messing around. But I remember being so struck that, uh, you know, there's hordes and crowds around Jesus with bringing all these sick. And I remember the first time it dawned on me that, he didn't wait until the crowds thinned out with sick people. He would have not healed all of them because he wasn't doing it like a, you know, marathon healing thing. He would just, mm -hmm. work, you know, be with them for a while and then he'd get away. Yes. And yeah. I remember thinking that seems, well, it was probably because it just seemed un-American. <laughs> 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 he didn't have a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week clinic but um it's it was remarkable he just gave him just did it for a period of time then then maybe there was a feeding and then he would leave exactly and often he'd go off and do something that sounded a lot more relaxing not always mm -hmm. but often he would uh and, and i think yes we have this idea that uh you know if if there's work to be done we've got to work until it's done and of mm. course most work is never done mm -hmm. um, and so we we do we uh, you know the protestant work ethic which mm. is definitely here in the united states is is stronger than anywhere else in the world i mean mm. you know i grew up in australia mm -hmm. uh, which is a much more relaxed culture mm. um, and um, you know it, it kind of amazed me when i came to the united states to to see how focused on work and how people applauded themselves for not mm -hmm. taking their vacation, yes. for not taking a day off, for mm -hmm. all of these things, and thinking that God liked this. That mm -hmm. was even worse, mm -hmm. was thinking that God liked this. So, sanctified, yeah. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, for example, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about early on in the book is play. Mm. Um, and uh, Stuart Brown, the... Uh, director of the Institute of Play says that nothing lights up the brain like play. And he believes that play is as important as oxygen for our survival. Wow. Um, you know, and, and not just for kids, but he says that adults need play just as much as kids do. Mm. Um, and we need three types of play. We need body play when we move our bodies, mm -hmm. um, you know, and you think of it, kids are dancing, they're moving, they never sit still. That's part of what their parents are always telling them is wrong with them. They never <laughs> sit still. You know? And then we need creative play. Um, uh, I can't remember what, what he calls it, but, you know, creative play where we're making things, where we're doing mm -hmm. things. And again, you think of kids, you know, and the things that they love to make um, and, and then the third kind of play is social play. Mm. Uh, and social play, of course, is when we're interacting with others in a playful way without any definite um, result. You know, I mean, unfortunately, mm. we've made a lot of play, particularly social play, into competition mm -hmm. rather than play. Mm -hmm. And there's a big difference between competitive kind of play mm -hmm. and play for the sake of play. Yeah. 
Um, and I think even when we get into play, you know, we can we can make this big mistake and get into the wrong kind of play. Mm. But I think it, and and but Brown talks about the fact that you know play. Of course, it gives us dance, it gives us music, mm. it gives us art, <clears throat> and it helps us. And I think one of the significant things, and I think uh, maybe this is part of the problem with our society at the moment. He mm. said, play tells us who is safe to be around. Mm. You know, when we play well with people. It means they're safe to be around, mm. um, and and that I think is um, a fascinating statement, mm-hmm. um, and one that I think you know maybe if we played with people of different colours and different persuasions and uh, different faith backgrounds and things like that, if we went out and played with them, mm-hmm. maybe we'd maybe we'd feel a lot safer around mm-hmm. them, and it would really change our attitude towards uh, people that that you know, we're often hesitant to be around now or um, we have a reaction to that is not always positive. Mm. Yeah, and there's something different between, like, sports that is competitive and you could get a trophy or you don't get a trophy and play that is no stakes. It's just just for fun. It's We're just yes. having fun. And th- the whole object is just enjoy yourself and enjoy the person you're with um, is so different than than sometimes this competitive... Uh, you know, tournaments or or sporting events or something like that, and it, it is does seem sort of rare because um, I know, like with my children, they're not involved in too many organized sports. But that's the main, and that's the main reason why they don't. When they invite someone over, the their friend can't come. Oh well, I'm going to, uh-huh. you know, I'm going to soccer, I'm going to baseball or whatever, and those are all these organized play times but they're very directed and there's an aim to them and get to the championship and um but is it really just allowing them to just uh be relaxed in front of other people it, it does seem very directed so you wonder what the cost is for that well and and you think you know in our society stress and anxiety are on the increase and i think you know maybe um, part of the, the problem is that we have made play into competition mm-hmm. uh, and there is so little unstructured play. There's so little, and um, kids uh, and adults, um, time is, uh, every minute is structured, you know, mm. so they've got it's schedules. I mean, kids of five have calendars. Mm. Yes, <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. me. <laughs> and, and it's sad. Yeah. It's so sad, you know, <laughs> so we have lost the ability. I mean, it's not just adults that have lost the ability to play mm-hmm. and have, have lost leaving time for play, but it's kids as well. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to take seriously that when Jesus said, become like children, part mm. of what he meant was play. Yeah. <laughs> Have yeah. fun. <laughs> and, and I think it, this plays into um, thinking about the other person. Uh, when it's competitive, it's obviously you're, you're thinking of yourself. And, and um, this has to do with a, a portion that I'd like you to read that has to do with the book of joy and um, Archbishop Tutu, his quote, I, I would love for you to read, um, he says, joy is a way of appreciating the world. And uh, there's a little bit down there um, in the middle of the page. Uh-huh. If you wouldn't mind reading yeah. that till the end of the paragraph, um, because there's there's something about 
joy and other people that involves other people that I don't think we really get it if if our schedule is is about us, which is, you know, our our life tends to be a story about us. Uh, (laughs) And um, and that's how we miss out on joy, I think, when when the story is about us. Well, that's definitely true. And I think that uh, Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu and uh, his co author, the Dalai Lama, for the the Book of Joy, which was actually, Mm. I mean, it was reading the Book of Joy that I think uh, was a big part of the foundation for me writing The Gift of Wonder. Mm. Um, And particularly this section was part of what really uh, was influential for me. Mm. Joy is a way of approaching the world, says the Archbishop Tutu. Our greatest joy, he contends, is when we seek to do good for others, share generously and show compassion. The more we turn towards others, the more joy we experience. And the more joy, the more joy we experience, the more we can bring joy to others. The goal is not just to create joy for ourselves, but as the Archbishop poetically phrased it, to be a reservoir of joy, an oasis of peace, a pool of serenity that can ripple out to all those around you Mm. I just love that Mm. Uh, just incredible Um, yeah well how do you feel that that plays out in in your own life or how would you move toward that in some of the things that you do or see in your surroundings well I think that one of the things that um, this did for me I mean writing the book uh, focusing on joy um, firstly, it made me more creative. I think mm. it gave me permission to be creative mm. uh, in ways, you know, it wasn't as though I had to be creative to produce something that was perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I, I do is I, I paint on rocks. Mm-hmm. Now, I love to go to Pinterest and get inspiration for painting on rocks. But, you know, you see so many perfect rock <laughs> paintings there. And it's like, I'm never going to paint like that um you know and i i shouldn't feel as though i need to Mm -hmm. uh you know part of the joy for me in painting on rocks isn't making something that's perfect Mm -hmm. but it's a reflective kind of an exercise Mm -hmm. um that you know kind of i i delight in messing around with paints again uh i delight in writing words that I can reflect on that bring me into a sense of God's presence. Mm. Uh, And then another dimension that I've moved into in the last few years is that I've then started another of my passions uh, is gardening. I think Mm. that's what we talked about the last time uh, that I was on here. Mm. And so part of what I've started doing is creating contemplative gardens, little gardens that I can put on my desk or Mm. somewhere around the house and the rocks that I paint become part of those gardens. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, this has been an absolute delight and joy for me, a growing delight and mm. joy. Um, and, you know, that's just one aspect of it, I think. Um, the other thing that probably stands out for me, um, we've, uh, I've decided to call this month um, um, the Auron Month. I've asked people to take on what I call the Auron Wonder Challenge, uh, oh. to choose something every day that give them, gives them a sense of awe and wonder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of what my husband do and I do, I uh, t- uh, try to do it every day but doesn't always get to be every day, is we go on a walk around the neighbourhood 
and we call it our awe and wonder walks mm -hmm. and we point out to each other the things that give us a sense of awe um, and I started doing this when I was working on the book mm. uh, we started doing it and it has been such a delight it has brought so much joy to both of our lives mm. uh, you know I think maybe play uh, lights up our brains but I think awe and wonder lights up our brains too mm -hmm. in tremendous ways and beautiful ways that, that really sparks joy within us and has the potential for sparking joy in others too as we become aware of the beauty around us um, not just the beauty I mean you can you can be inspired um, by other things as well I think what awe and wonder does is that it really helps you to notice the world in which you live mm -hmm. uh, not just the beautiful aspects of it but often the challenging aspects and even to find joy in the midst of those mm -hmm. and so that's another aspect of what I've really discovered as a result of this. Mm -hmm. Now usually when you're on your walks are you struck with awe and wonder because of mainly the natural world because I know you feel very connected you you say on page 94 are we suffering from a a nature deficit disorder yeah yeah well it, it is I think um, and I think for most people awe and wonder is found in the natural world um, in fact when I worked on um, one of my books uh, I think it was return to our senses you know I would ask people what makes you feel close to God mm -hmm. and the number one thing that people would say was some aspect of nature uh, you know, and, and it could be different for people. So for some, it was gardening. For some, it was sitting by the ocean. Uh, for some, it was just sitting and, um, you know, listening to the wind or uh, anything, all different kind of aspects of nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that it is in the midst of nature that most of us get a sense of awe and wonder. Um, but it doesn't mean that we have to live in the country or we have to go out into the country, um, you know, to have that sense of awe and wonder. In fact, I think there's just as much awe and wonder at, in fact, I'll, sometimes I think people think I'm a little strange. I will stop and um, look at what is growing in a crack, um, you know, and we tend to think, oh, there are weeds growing in the crack. But if you stop and you look at those weeds, right. you'll usually notice it's not just one weed, it's a whole garden of weeds. <laughs> yeah. And I think, isn't that awe-inspiring that God <laughs> even places gardens <laughs> in cracks, you know? So even in, in the urban set, setting like that, I mean, you know, the fact that, that green um, uh, seeds can germinate in cracks in the most barren seeming landscape or in the most urbanized landscape is is as awe-inspiring for me as getting out into the country mm -hmm. or walking around our nearby lake which they've made into a beautiful sanctuary and beautiful trees and animals uh, I mean not animals birds and and such mm -hmm. it's just a delight to you know so for me all of those situations can give a sense of awe and wonder mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and to the arts and, and people's creative energies put into something, uh, music or those things can too. I think about people who are in urban environments who don't have a chance to see much of nature, but what inspires them with awe and wonder um, could be a whole different set of things too. Oh, definitely. And, um, you know, one of the things I love when I'm in uh, an, uh, an urban situation 
is to walk around and look at, um, you know, the murals that people have, have painted or mm. even the graffiti mm -hmm. that people have painted, mm -hmm. which is often awe inspiring mm. art. Uh, you know, and this is a different form of awe, um, but it's just as awe inspiring as uh, nature can be, and it's just, just as creative, of course. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and I think um, I, we love to, of course, get rid of graffiti, and I think <laughs> that we need to sometimes because it's in very inappropriate places. Mm. But sometimes I think we just need to stand in awe of it um, mm. because it is it is as inspirational as the created world. I mean, it is the created world in some ways. It's, you know, that creative gift that God has placed in people that then it can, this is their way of expressing it. Mm. And I guess it has to do with, you're talking about the awe and wonder walks and you also talk about cultivating gratitude. It's somewhat, those are somewhat parallel concepts or um you know, corollary concepts. What are some other ways you suggest cultivating gratitude? Well, yeah, gra gratitude is very important, I think. Uh, this was a practice that I was introduced to several years ago uh, that really started to change my perspective on the world. Um, and one of the things that I introduced back then that I, I talk about in The Gift of Wonder was taking time on a Sunday when my husband and I go out for breakfast on a Sunday morning and we journal, um, we both journal and then we come home uh, and we share what we've journaled about. Mm -hmm. And one of the sections of my journaling on a Sunday is what am I grateful for? Mm -hmm. And I love that practice of looking back over the week and thinking, what am I grateful for this week? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's changed my attitude mm -hmm. towards my life. It's changed my attitude uh, often to the challenging things in my life mm. um, and, and help me not just to cope with them, but to see them through a different set of lenses that have been very, very important for me. Mm. Um, that would be my, my major um, uh, gratitude uh, practice. And then, you know, I didn't grow up with Thanksgiving. I tell people Australians oh aren't, aren't very thankful. We don't have a Thanksgiving <laughs> day. Um, You're not very thankful. <laughs> no, well, that's how I feel. Um, but, you know, so I really embraced Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, and it's become more and more of a meaningful mm. kind of not just a day for me, but mm -hmm. for a season. Mm -hmm. In fact, we live near the Canadian border, you know, we're in Seattle mm -hmm. and we have very good Canadian friends that often invite us up for Canadian Thanksgiving, which is about a month earlier mm -hmm. than American Thanksgiving. Um, and so I like to call that season between Canadian Thanksgiving and American Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving season. Mm. Um, and take time, uh, I usually create a, um, a contemplative garden that focuses on Thanksgiving. I did this last year. Mm. My theme was my cup overflows. Mm. Um, and uh, so I uh, created a garden that had several plants in it and then a cup hanging from a hook that had a plant that overflowed mm. into the garden mm -hmm. from it. Uh, and then I did paint several stones that I put through um, the garden with gratitude and my cup overflows on it. And that was a wonderful focus um, 
full that month of thinking about all of the things that I was grateful for, not just in the previous week, but in the previous year, uh, in the richness of my life, you know, um, in all of the years of my life. Uh, and, and so that's a, a wonderful practice that I've um, inco incorporated into my uh, yearly routine that mm. I've really appreciated in terms of gratitude too. I love that. I love that idea of a whole month of, of considering Thanksgiving and making it just a whole season of over and over being thankful. I was wondering if you think you could send me a few photos that I could include in the show notes of your gardens. Oh, I can. I can. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. I, that the, the Thanksgiving garden last year was one of my favorites. So mm. <laughs> I've yeah. got lots of photos of it. I'll Give us a couple. few ideas and yes. uh -huh. that would be wonderful. Yeah, I can include those in for people to see it as, as some extras. Um, I just started this year. I got a lot of every couple years I'll plant a, a garden. I'm it's you know, it might just be a couple tomato plants or this year it was a few more things. And then I also got went crazy with herbs and I got quite a few herbs and because uh, I, I went in and I smelled all of them and my daughter was like I'd like to get some plants and so we went a little wild <laughs> well and the fragrance mm -hmm. of plants can really pull you in yes into wanting to have them in your garden I think um and the joy you know there's something joy giving about uh you know that that fragrance of of particularly the herbs there's something about them yeah. you know I I have uh Rosemary tends to uh, grow amazing here in Seattle, as wow. well as lavender. So I have mm. both lavender and rosemary in, in my garden. And just going out and walking past them, and it clings to you mm. as you go through the rest of the day. Um, mm. And I think, you know, the, it's, it's, like, it's like joy because mm. it clings to you. You know, once you kind of brush against it, it kind of clings to you, mm. I think, in a wonderful way. Yeah, that's I, I got some lavender, I got rosemary, and I realize I don't probably have enough sunlight for some of my some of my things. But I do love like chopping some of them up and putting them in my food, like cilantro and uh -huh. uh, some of those. But yeah, this year was was particularly like just like more savory, more more aromatic, and now I'm probably hooked for life. <laughs> <It'll> be... <laughs> My smelly, oh, yummy, savory, like yeah, these savory gardens forever because I don't. It just adds so much extra. It's not. It's not much money, but you you get you know these these are living things and uh -huh. there's something extra special. It just seems like um, that I haven't been touched in the same sort of way as I was this year. Uh -huh. Well, it's a wonderful addiction to get. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. I was wondering if we could go to page 170 and you talk about stay close to the cracks and maybe you could read that poem part and also talk about some of what you mean in this chapter, chapter 12. Um, this is very touching to me and um, about compassion and nurture. And uh, there's so much in this book. It's so, so rich. And I was telling you before we recorded that um, it's just what something you can dig very deeply into different different parts of it and you can uh, really it's a good book to use with another person or in a small group to go through together and um, there's just a lot to be gained here 
Well, and that's my my hope that people will use it this way. In fact, I've already had a number of people that have told me that they're using it in small groups or in book clubs. I've had mm -hmm. uh, people that have used it already on retreats. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, a couple of people I know that are, are, are planning to use it in the fall mm -hmm. uh, for seminary classes as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it has a, a, a broad variety of um of uses as well as personal um, and personal study. So hopefully people will find the different ways that they can use it like this. Um, but um, anyway, the, I think this chapter on compassion and um, the the poem at the beginning, let me say, was inspired by um, a Leonard Cohen's mm. song, Anthem. Uh, where he says there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. Mm. Um, and so that's what inspired this uh, poem. Stay close to the cracks, to the broken places where people weep and cry out in pain. Stay close to the cracks where God's tears fall and God's wounds bleed for love of us. Stay close to the cracks where light shines in and grass pushes up through concrete. Stay close to the cracks where weeping wounds open unexpected doorways to healing and wholeness and life. Mm. Yeah, well, it makes me, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think um, much of my medical practice was spent working in third world cultures, um, you know, with people at the margins. Um, I worked in refugee camps for a while um, and part of what I talk about in this chapter is how when I married an American and settled here in the United States it, it would have been very easy for me uh, to really move away from those cracks mm. uh, and to not feel that I needed to continue to be involved with people in those kinds of situations. Mm. Um, but fortunately, um, I have a number of friends that have continued all of their lives uh, to walk in those kinds of situations and work in those kinds of situations. And, and they help keep me close to the cracks. Mm. Uh, they help keep me not just aware of um, those at the margins who are suffering and who are in pain, but they keep me aware of the ways that I need to respond or at least challenge me um, to find the ways that I need to respond. And, and that can be different in different situations. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't um, do medical work anymore, but I can help others mm -hmm. uh, that are going out into those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. uh, I can provide scholarships for education for people in third world countries so that they can get opportunities uh, that their older siblings or their parents haven't had. You know, there are all kinds of ways, of course, that we can respond. Um, and I think that part of what is important is to make sure that we do uh, continue to respond uh, and that we don't close our eyes. You know, we, we, uh, we talk about compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the reasons that we suffer a lot from compassion fatigue is because we have a tendency to focus on the need rather than the response. Or, or um, and a friend of mine, Sue Doobie, 
um, told me about how uh, she developed a new way of praying that totally revolutionized her prayer and I think totally revolutionized uh, kind of whether or not we can respond with compassion. Mm. Uh, what she does is that when she's wanting to pray, uh, she will, for a situation, she will sit and she'll ask God for what she calls the joy spots. What are the things that she is aware of that God is already doing? Uh, and, you know, that she can, uh, as, as it were, come alongside or join in mm -hmm. uh, with. And that she finds shifts her prayer uh, from praying, uh, you know, in a despondent way for, oh, the, our world has incredible needs, to praying in a hopeful way of, God, you're doing something. God, how can I join in? God, how can I be part of your response? And, and I love that kind of an approach. I think that we need to recognize that, um, you, you know, asking the why questions, why is there suffering in their world? We will never mm -hmm. get an answer to that one, you know, that will satisfy us. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it can make us complacent. It can make us feel, well, you know, there's always going to be suffering in this world. Um, therefore, uh, I don't need to respond. You know, I can't make a difference. But I think the exact opposite of tr is true because mm -hmm. basically, you know, there is suffering in the world, but God is responding all the time. Mm -hmm. I think in the book, in The Gift of Wonder, I, I tell the story of um, the year that, um, firstly, from my perspective, there were fl bad floods in Brisbane, Australia. Then there were the earthquake, and, and I have relatives living in Brisbane, Australia. Then there was the earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand. And mm. I uh, lived in Christchurch, New Zealand for a couple of years and actually lost a good friend in the mm. earthquake. Mm. Um, and then there was the tsunami in Japan. Mm. I mean, devastation. And I just look at it and I, you know, I remember one day praying and thinking, God, where are the joy spots? You know, how can mm. I possibly find joy in the midst of the suffering that this has created? And God reminded me of the stories that people that I knew in each of those situations had said to me, uh, my aunt in Brisbane, she said, I turned around one day and there were these strangers who had literally come all across the country in order to help. Mm. In Christchurch, New Zealand, you know, people had come across the world to help with the efforts uh, in Japan they had to turn people away mm. because there were so many people responding to that and I think these are the joy spots this is like the story of the Good Samaritan being lived out in our midst and I think this is God responding mm. and when we look at that and we think wow you know there is that deposit of compassion within all of us mm. um, that we need to allow to come out uh, it makes us both view these situations differently and it makes us uh, anticipate the possibility of responding in a different way as well. Mm -hmm. I think it gives us more of an excitement about responding. It's kind of like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, how can I join in? 
and be part of the difference, part of making a difference in this kind of a situation, uh, rather than thinking, oh, there's so much suffering in this world, we're never going to make a difference. And it's, you know, and there's some truth in that. But boy, we can make a difference to individual lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that's what God calls us to, and to be excited about the difference that we can make and about the, the, the difference that other people are making as well. I love how you put that. And it's interesting what you say about so much help that people were turned away. I think some of these giant catastrophes do have national and international responses. And sometimes we think, well, I can't go to Japan. And and maybe, you know, our prayer should have legs that we, we maybe we can't go to Japan or, or wherever the next horrific thing happens, but we can do something right in our neighborhood, and that's just as uh-huh. important. Uh, oh, but, yeah. And our thoughts, sometimes our, we say, well, you have our thoughts and prayers. It's like we check that off our list. Well, I, I, did, I did the thing I should do instead of making those prayers reality by being the answer to the prayer. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, you, you know, I, I think the word prayer can be a cop-out you know because if we just offer up a few words to God um, you know I don't think that's really what prayer was about Mm. I I don't think it's what prayer is meant to be about I think prayer is meant to be an active thing Mm -hmm. you know that calls us to engagement in all kinds of issues Mm. Uh, you you know and and part of what um, we need to do in our prayer uh, when we are spending that time before God is asking God Okay, God. Here are all the. In fact, I I, um, I know people that actually pray with the newspaper <laughs> beside mm-hmm. them, uh, asking the question, God, you know, what do you want me to pray for today? And God, what do you want me to respond to today? Mm-hmm. Uh, not thinking that we have to respond to everything, but choosing the things that God has specifically asked us to respond to, yeah. uh, and zeroing in on those things. I, I think that's an important kind of way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, because we all have the capacity to respond, but um, we often have the capacity to respond far more than we do. Mm. And we need to make sure that we do respond to the full extent of what God is asking of us. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I, I know there's a part in your book and it, it talks about the, the fatigue part. And it's like, what if we're always doing? And, and the thing is, we don't have to do until we're, you know, dropped dead, exhausted, but the the part that we do pick to do does bring joy because we know that we're we're part of a solution we're part of moving things forward um and i think about um you know every neighborhood has a lonely older person who would love to be um you know have a conversation or be brought a meal or have their lawn mowed or something like that and um there's all these little things that um, may not be as glamorous as as pulling people out of flood water, but but there still are things that we can do in people's lives that bring compassion and healing and wholeness. Uh, oh, exactly, exactly. And and you know even little things. I mean, it's interesting to me. I belong to in our neighborhood what is called a uh, a buy nothing group. Mm-hmm. You know where people actually basically if they've got too much of something, mm-hmm. uh, they kind of. Uh, there's a Facebook group and you're only allowed to belong to the group in your local neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But people will post things and it's like, uh, oh, 
does anybody need this? And does anybody need this? And it's mm. just a, I mean, I think that that is a form of response, you know, mm-hmm. it's saying, hey, I want to be generous with what God's given me. I mean, um, and, and you see people sometimes giving away amazing things. Mm. Uh, people, you know, the commonest one is sharing clothes that kids have grown out of Mm -hmm. but there are other things as well and it's just beautiful Mm -hmm. to see that kind of of sharing and caring and generosity going on in a neighborhood Um, and uh, and I think that's a wonderful example uh, of you know compassion reaching out of of the caring heart of God reaching Mm -hmm. out as well Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be done in the name of Jesus I think any form of caring uh, because I think that that caring, compassionate heart, it's part of the image of God. And we are made in the image of God. So it rests in every single person. Mm. Um, And I think that, um, you know, we can encourage the bringing out of that kind of part of the image of God by our own responses. You know, Mm. um, I I think that's part of what we see uh, in in the Gospels. I think it's part of what we see in... um, you know, different movements that have shown generosity and that, that, you know, what we're talking about, the responses to catastrophe mm-hmm. uh, and these kinds of things. Um, it's it's important to, to see these things mm-hmm. and, and the importance of them. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I know as, as a, a younger Christian who wasn't, um, who was, was, had a very narrow mind, I thought that, you know, oh, only my group is is you know following in the way of God. You know, but but then uh-huh. you but then you realize there are people all over the world who see the humanity in other people and are very willing to give of themselves so that other people can benefit. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's part of that image of God within us, mm-hmm. um, and we need to recognize that that is present in every person, mm-hmm. uh, and look for that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else that you would like to say about your book or or close out with in the end? And then after that, I'll let you um, talk about where you can be found online. Okay. Um, One of the things I should mention is at the end of each chapter, uh, there is an exercise uh, for people to do. Some of them are fairly simple exercises. Some of them are fairly complicated exercises. Um, And... Uh, but you know the ver- you don't have to do everything. In fact, it always amazes me when people do decide to do every single exercise that I put into a book. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that, that is to me is amazing. But um, it, you know, uh, people need to choose the ones that they are most drawn to, mm-hmm. and um, and use those. I think, and I think this is a way that helps us to take the words that we've been reading and put them into our hearts rather than on our, um, you know, just kind of out there. It really helps to bring things in deeper mm. when we have these kinds of experiences where we're actually taking some of what we've been reading and we're creating as a result of it. Yeah, I see on page 106 the way the recipe to make a seed bomb, to seed bomb <laughs> your neighborhood with flowers. <laughs> That's been one of the favorites. Uh, and I I know people that have done it and have had great deal of pleasure, not just um, making them, but going around and seed bombing 
places in their neighborhoods that they'd like to see green things growing. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds awesome. So where can people find you online or Twitter, Facebook? Where are some good places to connect with your work? A a community blog, but I I blog every Monday on it, is godspacelight.com. And, um, you know, that's a great place not only to find out more about people's responses to the book, but also to be exposed to other creative people that contribute on a regular basis to it too. Um, And I should mention that through the blog, uh, the book is available, though it's also available in places like, um, I mean, Amazon and Barnes & Noble and uh, directly from InterVarsity Press. But through the blog, uh, you had me read out a couple of the prayers this morning. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've done is we've put together a series of of prayer cards um, that have photos that I've taken in different places Mm -hmm. uh, and then a a prayer on the side of the photo Mm -hmm. and a short excerpt. Uh, from the particular chapter that it's come from. Mm-hmm. And I should say that the our local um, uh, printers where I got these printed, um, they come in a set of 12, mm-hmm. uh, and the local printers liked them so much, <laughs> and this is a Muslim uh, printers, mm-hmm. that they wanted a copy of them for themselves. Aww. So I thought, isn't that lovely? Yeah. You know, so It's amazing what can speak to people. Mm. Uh, So that's another adjunct. I am also on Facebook uh, under my name, Christine Sign. Um, And usually usually it's just, uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's usually just Christine Sign, Mm -hmm. uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram Mm -hmm. I'm on as well. Uh, I am on YouTube, but I haven't added anything to YouTube for a while because I just haven't had time (laughs) with uh, all the publicity for the book. Um, But uh, I'm hoping later in the year to get back to making, I I put together little meditation videos Mm -hmm. uh, often. And so um, I'm hoping later in the year to be able to get back to that again. Mm, So they're the different ways you can get in touch with me. I, even my dog likes your book because I just realized that there's bite marks in it, and that's <laughs> that's from Luna, my chocolate lab. And I don't know why. She's never bitten another book, but she was trying to get her mouth around this one, and uh, oh, she thinks it's delicious. But it's <laughs> so unusual. But... Well, I, I have to keep all kinds of things out of the mouth of our 18-month-old golden retriever. So <laughs> I understand that dogs are attracted to interesting things. <laughs> she was getting a lot of joy out of it. Okay. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, this has been so special, and um, I just appreciate your work so very much. And um all that you put out there in the world for contemplatives and people who are trying to connect with God in rich and deep ways. I'm very appreciative that you would come on this program again, and I wish you the best with your book. Well, thank you, Lisa. I appreciate uh, you doing this, and uh, it's been a delight to talk to you today. 